Now, we have here, coming to chapter 26, a very remarkable prophecy concerning Tyre and also concerning Sidon. And this makes this an exceedingly interesting section. Tyre and Sidon belong together. They belong together like pork and beans or ham and eggs. You never think of one and the other. Now, Tyre was the capital of the great Phoenician nation. They were a seagoing people. They plied the Mediterranean and went even beyond. We know today that they went around the pillars of Hercules, the rock of Gibraltar, and came up to Great Britain. And they got tin there. In fact, the meaning of the word Britain was tin. And they also established a colony in North Africa, and that was the nation and city that gave Rome so much trouble. And then Tarshish, north on the southern coast of Spain, was founded by these people. They were great colonizers, and they also apparently went around Africa, and they went a great deal farther than we have believed in the past. Now, Tyre was a great city, a proud city, a great place. And Hiram, king of Tyre, had been a good friend of David, supplied him with materials. Solomon didn't get along with him as well as David did. But this man, Hiram, apparently a great king. But also the center of the worship of Baal was there in Tyre and Sidon. And you have also this woman Jezebel. She was a daughter of the priest and king also of that area of the Phoenicians, and she introduced this worship in the northern kingdom. Now, God has a prophecy here concerning this place, and it is tremendous. It's first against the prince and the ruler of the place. Let me begin reading it, chapter 26. And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre hath said unto Jerusalem, Aha, she's broken. That was the gates of the people. She's turned unto me. I shall be replenished. Now she's laid waste. In other words, Tyre was destroyed at the same time that Jerusalem was. Nebuchadnezzar took Tyre. Now, verse 3, I'm reading, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I'm against the old Tyre. And when God says that, you can be sure it's against the place. And I will cause many nations to come up against thee as the sea causeth its waves to come up. Just as the waves break on a shore, God says Phoenicia and Tyre, the great commercial center, the great capital that's been invincible, now nations are going to come just like the waves that have been breaking on the shore. Now what would happen? They shall destroy the walls of Tyre, break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. Now who would do that? Now actually Nebuchadnezzar came against the city. He destroyed the city. But friends, he never did anything like this. He didn't scrape it at all. And God's not through with it. Will you notice what he says? It shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. That's an interesting statement. It's going to become a fishing village, not the great proud capital. For I have spoken it, saith the Lord God, and it shall become a spoil to the nations. And her daughters, which are in the field, shall be slain by the sword. Now, you find that these colonies that they had established, they'd established one on Cyprus. Cyprus means copper, and they got copper from there. These metals were brought by the Phoenicians into the ancient civilized world of that day. Now, her daughters, they're going to be destroyed also. Let me read verse 7. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyre... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, a king of kings from the north, with horses and with chariots and with horsemen and companies and many people, he shall slay with the sword thy daughters in the field. 
He shall make a fort against thee, cast the siege mound against thee, and lift up the buckler against thee. He shall set engines of war against thy walls, and with his axes he shall break down thy towers. By reason of the abundance of his horses, their dust shall cover thee. Now Nebuchadnezzar breached the walls of ancient Tyre, just as he had Jerusalem. And this statement was literally fulfilled. But he has said that he's going to scrape her dust from her just like the top of a rock. Well, Nebuchadnezzar didn't do that at all. Now, verse 11, "...with the hoofs of his horses shall he tread down all thy streets. He shall slay thy people by the sword, and thy strong garrisons shall go down to the ground." Now, what about it? How about scraping it? Well, let's read on. Verse 12, "...and they..." Not Nebuchadnezzar now. God has said the nations are coming. Here comes another nation. "...and they shall make a spoil of thy riches, and make a prey of thy merchandise, and they shall break down thy walls, destroy thy pleasant houses, and they shall lay thy stones and thy timber and thy dust in the midst of the water." And I will cause the noise of thy songs to cease, and the sound of thy harps shall be no more. And I will make thee like the top of a rock. Thou shalt be a place to spread nets upon. Thou shalt be built no more. For I, the Lord, have spoken it, saith the Lord God. Now, friends, may I say to you that this prophecy just seemed like it could never be fulfilled for 300 years. There were the ruins of Tyre, and they were, I tell you, very impressive. But this hadn't been fulfilled. Who's going to take up the stones and even scrape it, and even the dust put it in the ocean? Well, out of the west, there comes this goat that Daniel talked about with the strong horn. That was Alexander the Great. And what had happened was that Tyre decided after the destruction of Nebuchadnezzar that they would go out to an island since they were seagoing people. And on that island, they'd build a fortress and they would be there and nobody could get to them. Well, when Alexander got there, he saw the ruins of the city, but out yonder on the islands where the people are and where the new city is. And what did he do? He had plenty of time and he had a lot of soldiers. So he decided he'd build a causeway. Where did he get the material to put out in the ocean? Why, he scraped old tire, and he took the pillars, he took even the dust, and he just poured it out there and built a causeway, and his army went right into the city of Tyre and destroyed it. And from that day to this, it's never been rebuilt. Now, may I say to you, you can say that Ezekiel wrote history about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, but you sure can't say that he wrote history when he wrote about this man, Alexander the Great. Now, I've been to ancient Tyre. I've stood in those ruins. And I must confess, I was a little confused at first. I drove down the coast from Beirut and the Mediterranean Sea's on the right, and I get down here to the ruins of ancient Tyre, and it's over on the left. You know what had happened? I couldn't figure it out at first. It was really puzzling. I had walked out on this isthmus now that this man, Alexander Maine, and there are the ruins. They've been excavating there, and I walked down through some of those trenches. And I ought not to make the confession, but there was all kinds of pieces of pottery there and other artifacts. I just picked up a couple pieces of pottery and put them in my pocket. I think I still have that around somewhere. That was ancient time, if you please. This was literally fulfilled. Now, in one sense, this is one of the most remarkable prophecies that you have in the Word of God. And it's been literally fulfilled. And there's the place over there. It's one of the best places to build a city I've ever been. But nobody's built it back. Lebanon hasn't. Sidon stands today as it always has. But Tyre went down, the main city. You want to say today that the Word of God is guesswork or that this is filled with all kinds of falsehoods? May I say to you, it's not my business to explain this to you. It's your business 
to decide how it came to pass. I'll tell you what I believe. It's the Word of God. Only God could prophesy like this. Why, our weatherman has had a lot of trouble this winter. He can't even tell you what it's going to do the next day. God said what was going to happen in 300 years and what was going to happen even today. If you can rebuild Tyre, you can contradict God's Word. But I advise you to invest your money somewhere else. Now, that prophecy concerning Tyre, the ruins of that city over there today, stands as a witness to the accuracy of the Word of God. And it is indeed remarkable. Now, this was such an impressive city in Ezekiel's day, and actually he'd never seen it. He'd never been there at all. But he gives to us here now in the 27th chapter what is, I would say, one of the great chapters of the Bible. It's a lamentation, to be specific, and it's a lamentation, very frankly, of the city that and it was a great city. I don't want to minimize that at all. The greatness of this city in that day is something that should be noted. And this is not only a sad chapter, but it's a very beautiful chapter. For he likens Tyre, the great capital of the Phoenician Empire, a sea-going people. He likens the destruction of Tyre, compares to a great ship that's wrecked. I can't think of a greater picture than that. And now what was it that brought Tyre down? Will you listen? Verse 1, chapter 27. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Now, thou son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyre. Now, here is the lamentation. Say unto Tyre, O thou that art situated at the entrance of the sea, that art a merchant of the people for many coastlands, thus saith the Lord God, O Tyre, thou hast said, I am of perfect beauty. What was it that brought Tyre down? The same thing that brought the rock-hewn city of Petra down. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, and the pride and the glory of nations, the pomp and the ceremony that passes off of the stage of human life. That's the thing that's brought these great nations of the world, and they stand in wreck and ruin today. And it's a picture that's given to us in this chapter, and it speaks of how extensive was this kingdom. And we find here that you begin with Kittim, or Chittim, as you have it in your authorized version, and that means copper, and it's Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. That was one of their colonies, and they extended all the way out to Tarshish. Tarshish was sort of the jumping-off place. That's the place that Jonah bought a ticket to, but he never got to see the place. But he did see the interior of a big fish. Verse 25, I read, "...the ships of Tarshish did sing of thee in thy market, and thou wast replenished, and made very glorious in the midst of the seas." A great city, great commercial center, where merchants from all over the world came. Island of Cyprus, from Tarshish at the end of the world of that day. Verse 17, "...Judah and the land of Israel were thy merchants." They traded in thy market wheat of minute and panag and honey and oil and balm, all of these things. And that penneth was perhaps olives or figs, probably some kind of preserves. And probably they had one of Betty Crocker's recipes and made up something that you could use fruit in, and that was what they sold. In fact, you could have bought everything there. If you want a picture of the city of Tyre, the great commercial center, I think that you'll see it as it's depicted in a prophecy of Babylon in the future that will become the great commercial center, the great religious center, and the great political center of the world. It will be the capital of 
Antichrist. And I'm just going to lift out one verse that describes it. It's over in chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. Maybe I should read two verses. Let me read verse 12 and 13. The merchant dies of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls, fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and fine wood and all manner vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and the souls of men and the fruits that thy soul lusteth after. May I say to you, it's a picture today of London and Paris and Rome and New York City and Los Angeles, California. You can buy anything here you want. In this great Southern California area, you name it, and if you have the price, you can buy. It's an age of materialism, but it was that in that day. This great city, like a great ship, everything they needed was on board, and the music was playing, and there was the laughter, and there was the wine and the champagne. It was all there, and it all disappeared. God judged it. Now, here is the lamentation weeping over that great city. And that's what they're going to do at the last day. I tell you, in the last days and the stock market fails and everything you got in your safety deposit box won't be worth a dime and you will find that everything you thought was valuable will all of a sudden become just dust and ashes in your hand. What a tragic day it was then, and what a day is coming in the future. This means that you ought to be careful not put all your eggs in one basket. The fact of the matter is, I think people today ought to enjoy this affluent society. I see nothing wrong in that, provided it does not become an obsession and a religion. And actually, the day that religion has become, even in many of our good churches, there's very little real Bible teaching. We play games. We pat each other on the back, and we have fellowship. We love to talk about that, you know. And we like to pull a verse out every now and then to make sure that we're religious and pious, and we go through the little ceremonies. And they did that in Tyre. They did it in Jerusalem. But God destroyed them, and destroyed them because they had an opportunity, and because they had a privilege, they had a responsibility. Now, will you notice verse 32? And in their wailing they shall take up a lamentation for thee, and lament over thee, saying, What city is like Tyre, like the destroyed in the midst of the sea? Great ship, it's gone down. Verse 34, In the time when thou shalt be broken by the seas, in the depths of the waters, thy merchandise and all thy company in the midst of thee shall fall. Verse 36, the merchants among the people shall hiss at thee. Thou shalt be a terror and never shall be any more. And I walked through those ruins. I couldn't hear the music and I could not hear the laughter. I could not see the gold and the silver and the buildings. All I saw was broken pieces of pottery. All I could see was the wreck and ruin of a great city. And the God of heaven says, I judged you. May I say to you, there must be a message in there for this day and generation. Now we come to what is probably one of the great chapters of the Scripture. I wish that I could spend a week in this chapter here. But I cannot. Now move along. And don't complain, will you not? Because we move along. Just remember, we're all on a Bible bus. Oh, it's just a type. It's just a picture. But we're on a Bible bus, and you leave the driving to us, will you? All right. Now, verse 1 of chapter 28. 
the word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyre. Now we are going to have a message in this chapter to the prince of Tyre, and then we're going to have a message to the king of Tyre. Verse 12. Now, back of this great kingdom, this great commercial center, great political center, great stronghold, you're going to find that there is the one who apparently controls the kingdoms of this world. He offered them to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus rejected them, but he didn't reject them because he didn't think Satan had them. He knew he had them. He just didn't accept them. He's going to rule over them someday, but not as a vicegerent of Satan. And this one today is the prince of the powers of the air. He today is the one back of the kingdoms of this world. Whether we like it or not, that's the picture. Now we have here the judgment against the prince. I think that here you have a type of antichrist, the great Roman emperor that's going to rule. I don't like to run ahead, but as I suggested in Second Thessalonians, and we'll go into detail when we get to the 13th of Revelation, actually it takes two persons to fulfill all that's said concerning the Antichrist. And after all, John said there are many. One will deny the person of Christ, be his enemy. The other will imitate him. You have a religious ruler and a political ruler. Now here you have, I think, the combination that is set before us. You have here the vicegerent of Satan. Now will you notice, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyre, Thus saith the Lord God, because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God. Now that's exactly what Antichrist is going to say. Going to make himself God. And he says, I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man, and not God. Though thou set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that they can hide from thee. Now, another reference to Daniel here, and Ezekiel and Daniel were contemporary. This young man, Ezekiel, had great respect for Daniel, because Daniel was yonder in the palace, the prime minister, and was really standing for the Lord. Personally, I think Ezekiel had a hard job out there with the captives. I'd have much preferred living in the castle, although I'd have to spend one night in the lion's den. I think I'd take the castle, the palace of the king. But Ezekiel had no choice in that. But he respected Daniel. Now he says this prince, he was a smart boy. Now, if you don't think there were wise men in that day, you're wrong. I think they could put this so-called intelligence crowd at centers in Harvard today, would make them look like Penny Annie, would make them look like they were in the kindergarten. These men in that day were wise men. Now, this is the prince, and I believe that he represents the political side, the ruler, because in verse 10 it says, "...thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God." Now, let me back up and say that again and say it accurately. This is the religious ruler that he's talking about. And I think he comes out of Israel. This is the beast out of the land. Now, Antichrist, the political ruler, comes out of the sea of the nations of the world, and I think he's a Gentile. And this other one will be his advisor, you see. He will be a sort of a prime minister to him. He'll be like Daniel was in Babylon like Joseph was in Egypt, and like Disraeli was in England, and like Henry Kissinger was to President Nixon. I think you have that kind of a picture. And maybe I ought not to make that kind of a comparison, but I think it will illustrate. Now he says in verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying... Now, this man Ezekiel's not going to let you forget that he's not telling you what he thinks. He's telling you what God's given to him to say. Now he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre. Here you have a lamentation upon the king of Tyre. We've had a lamentation of the city. 
Now the king, great ruler. Remember Hiram, king of Tyre, had been a friend of David. David liked him. And I don't think David would have made any man his friend that was not an outstanding man, because David was. And say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And immediately now we pass beyond the local king of Tyre, because they changed quite often back there. It wasn't safe to be a king. Uneasy hangs the head that wears the crown, and the glory didn't last long. It was like the bromide that is sick transit gloria mundi. That is Latin for thus passeth the glory of the world. Now, back of that, the kingdom and the king is Satan. And I think now you have here one of those few passages in the Word of God that give you the origin of evil and the origin of this creature. And I would not want to press too much, but follow me very carefully. Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, Satan is absolutely, when he was created, the wisest creature I think God ever created. But let's keep in mind he's a creature. He was created, and he was perfect in beauty. Now, if you think Satan is a creature that has horns and a forked tail and cloven feet, you are wrong. You've been reading literature of the Middle Ages, and they get that actually out of a Greek mythology that goes back into Asia Minor. There's a great temple of Apollo. You find one in Pergamon. You find one in Corinth. And you find one in every city. There's one in Ephesus. And this temple of this god, he was the great god Pan. He is Bacchus, god of pleasure, has horns. He runs through the great vineyard. He's the god of the grape, of the wine. And the bottom part of him is a goat. Now, that's mythology. Word of God doesn't present Satan like that, friends. The Word of God presents him as perfect in beauty. If you could see him, you'd see the most beautiful creature you've ever seen. Paul says that even his ministers are angels alike. Somebody says, you know, I heard so-and-so and he's head of a cult or speaker of a cult. I heard one when I was a boy. Oh, he had gray hair. Fine-looking. Oh, was he handsome. Fine-looking man. And so many women even almost as swoon in his presence. They treated him as if he were a god. They almost claimed that. But he was a minister of Satan. I don't mind saying it. He almost led me astray when I was just a boy and never had any instruction. Oh, I tell you how terrible they could be. Perfect in wisdom. Just fill up the sum of wisdom. He knew all you know, unless you're God. And he was perfect in beauty. Now, verse 13, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, no king of Tyre could fulfill that. Every precious stone was thy covering. Mine and all these stones are given you. He was beautiful. And they were prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub, that covereth, that is, he protected the throne of God, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, thou wast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. And this is not the Eden that was in this world at all. This apparently is a picture of heaven itself. He had access to heaven, and we're told here, the workmanship of thy timbrels and thy flutes were prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created." He could not only sing, he was a band. He was music itself. You know where music originated? Go back and you'll find out in the order of Cain, his progeny. It was from then there has come the worldly music. And when I listen to some of it, I'm confident that it came out of the pit. It couldn't come from any place else. Now, my friend, may I say to you, we have a world of light given here. You talk about being a musician. Satan was a musician. Now, will you notice, what was it brought him down? Verse 15, Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. 
Now, let me say this. If you are one of these saints that think you have arrived and you are perfect and you set yourself up as a standard, remember that Satan was the angel of light. He was perfect, but he fell. And if he fell, what about you? What about me? We're just frail human beings down here. Now, notice this. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created Tell iniquity was found in thee. And what was that iniquity? Well, Ezekiel just doesn't tell us. Now, that's the reason that I emphasized Isaiah 14. What was it? Pride. I will lift up my throne. He wanted to divorce himself from God and be God. He was in rebellion against God. Now, he apparently protected the throne of God. He had the highest position that you could have. Now, God said what he was going to do. Pride brought him down. He says here, "...by the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned." That sin is pride. "...therefore I will cast thee." Notice what God says he'll do. God says, "...I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God." I will destroy the old covering cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. I don't know about you. This is comforting to me. I, frankly, wouldn't be able to overcome him. I'm no match for him. Therefore, I'm thankful that God's going to deal with him. Now he says, listen to him. Verse 17, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Oh, it was pride then, wasn't it? Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. You see, Solomon, the wisest man, played the fool. And here we have the greatest creature God ever created, perfect in wisdom. That is, he filled it up all you could learn. He didn't know everything, but he played the fool. And the saints can do that today. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Now, God's going to make a spectacle of him someday. Now, God says, verse 19, "...all that know thee among the people shall be appalled at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more." God is going to get rid of him in his universe. And we pray for that day to come. Now you have here, concluding this, a brief prophecy concerning Sidon. God says he's against Sidon. But he doesn't say he'll destroy. He just says there's going to be blood in the streets. And that's what happened. That's a matter of history. It stands over there today, and I've been in Sidon. Well, Sidon, no word about it being destroyed. Did say the enemy would take it. But that city, and you find there that old fortress right out on the rocks at the edge of the water, that's been there from the early days. And that city has stood. It was never destroyed. It's there today, and it's the place where the oil is brought in from the Near East. And it comes by pipeline and put on ship there. Sidon is a thriving port right now, whereas down the coast you have the city of Tyre, the great city. It's destroyed, and there's no city there. It's a fishing village, but there's nothing where old Tyre was. God says it'll never be rebuilt. And I take it that he knows what he's talking about. And after 2,500 years, wouldn't you go along and say that apparently somebody knew what they were talking about? Now we conclude that section because in the darkest moment of the history of these people, you find the light breaking through and never is it so bright. And he sees a future regathering of Israel. In verse 25 of chapter 28, he'd said, Thus saith the Lord God, When I shall have gathered the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered, and shall be sanctified in them in the sight of the nations. Now, God makes it very clear. He's not through with the nation Israel. One of the reasons that there are so many theologians that get by by saying God is through with the nation Israel is because God's people are not acquainted with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the minor prophets. The theme song of these prophets 
was God's not through with the nation Israel. It sounds like a stuck record when you go through these prophecies. And they should be studied because of that fact it will throw absolutely new light on the Word of God and it will no longer be a jigsaw puzzle, but everything begins to fall into place. Now we come in chapter 29 to Egypt, the last nation here in 29, 30, 31, and 32 is all about Egypt. Now, there are many commentators that take the position, and these are conservative men, that the prophecies here concerning Egypt are of more interest than the one concerning Tyre. Now, I must confess, I do not concur in that. I think that prophecy concerning Tyre is remarkable. But we are going to find here a very remarkable prophecy. And one of these prophecies is that Egypt was to be destroyed. Now, Egypt was a great nation and had not been destroyed. It had maintained its integrity down through the centuries. One of the most ancient nations actually did not need to put up a wall of defense. After all, that desert was a pretty good defense. And there was only one entrance in there, and that was through the Nile River Valley. And frankly, all they had to do was to put up a good defense there. And you'll find the cities of Egypt were not walled cities. It wasn't necessary to wall them at all. Now, God says, though, they're going into captivity for 40 years. Now, will you notice here, and this is a remarkable prophecy, and I do not want to be tedious with it, but I would like to call attention to just a few things. We have here in the 10th year, in the 10th month, in the 12th day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Now, God here takes a very definite position against this land of Egypt that had put his people in the brickyards, had introduced them to idolatry, and had been a thorn in their flesh for years. And Israel was constantly running to Egypt for help. They seemed to lean upon it. Now, God says, I'm against Egypt, and Egypt is to be destroyed. Verse 3, Speak and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I'm against thee, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster that lieth in the midst of his rivers, which hath said, My river is mine own, and I've made it for myself. Now, the crocodile, apparently, is the sea monster here. And Pharaoh's likened unto a sea monster. And like the crocodile says, this is my river. And the very interesting thing is that Egypt worshipped all manner of birds and beasts and bugs, the scarab, you know. And if you'll notice, the plagues of Egypt were leveled against actually the gods of Egypt that they worshipped. I think that in spite of the terribleness of the plagues, that they also revealed God had a sense of humor. Imagine, friends, worshiping Hika, the frog-headed God, and then waking up one morning and frogs are all in your bedroom. What are you going to do? Start killing off the gods? I think the Lord must have got a, you know, smiled at that anyway. Now, will you notice the Pharaoh that's mentioned here is Pharaoh Hophra, and he's called in Greek Apres. He was the grandson of Pharaoh Necho, who had defeated King Josiah at Megiddo. In fact, Josiah was slain there. And King Zedekiah, and also we find the other rulers even before him, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, they turned to Pharaoh Hophra when Jerusalem was besieged. And this Egyptian army came up and came through Phoenicia and forced the Chaldeans to raise the siege of Jerusalem. You remember, we looked at that in Jeremiah. Now, the prophet Jeremiah, he announced the doom of Hophra also. And we had it in Jeremiah, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hands of his enemies, 
to the hand of them that seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy, and that sought his life. The critic here has found fault, and I'm not going into detail here, but I would like to recommend to many folk who listen to this that are Bible students and they like to go into something. The critic has come along here and made the statement that this prophecy was not fulfilled at that time. It was fulfilled 17 years later. But the interesting thing is, if you read it carefully, God made it very clear it wasn't going to be fulfilled then, but the prophecy was given then that later it would be destroyed. That is, Egypt was. Now, what would happen to Egypt? Now, I drop down to verse 13, and I must hit high points now. Yet thus saith the Lord God, At the end of forty years will I gather the Egyptians from the people among whom they were scattered. Now, seventeen years later, to be exact, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, came And he took the Egyptians into captivity at that time, and they were in captivity 40 years, not 70 like Israel. And we are told here, from among the people among whom they were scattered. Now, I read on verse 14 of chapter 29 of Ezekiel. I will bring again the captivity of Egypt, and I will cause them to return into the land of Pathros, into the land of their habitation, and they shall be there a base kingdom. Now, I wouldn't have you miss this for anything in the world. Notice what he says now in verse 15. It shall be the basis of the kingdoms, neither shall it exalt itself any more above the nations, for I will diminish them that they shall no more rule over the nations." Now, Egypt had been the great power of the ancient world. They come out of the dawn of history as a great nation. And the monuments there and the tombs there reveal the fact that they had a civilization that was actually second to none. And it's believed today by many historians that the Greeks got a great deal of their information from the Egyptians. It was a great civilization, and it was a great nation of the ancient world. Now, at this time, God says, I'm going to let Nebuchadnezzar take you. And not only that, you're going to return in 40 years, and when you do, you're going to be a base kingdom. You'll never rule over the nations, and you're going to be the basis of kingdoms. May I say to you, We, in our tours, visit many lands in the Near East. You don't get any lower than Egypt, I can assure you that. No one can go to Cairo without your heart being sick. When you see the poverty there and the low level to which the people have come. You know, the Lord was accurate, friends, if you just listened to him. Now he goes on in this particular chapter to talk about that there would be a judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, but he was going to come. He'll cause his army to serve a great service against Tyre. That's verse 18. You see, he'll take Egypt, he'll take Tyre, and we read here verse 19, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt unto Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And now you find out that Not only Tyre, not only Egypt, but the nation Israel will all be given over to Babylon, actually the first great world empire. Now, in chapter 30 here, we have what I have actually labeled a lamentation. You have here a lamentation, and he speaks here of the desolation of Egypt, and that is a very desolate country, by the way, very desolate nation. Chapter 30, verse 1. And again, here we go. This has been repeated. I really do not know how many times, but I'm sure there's already been several hundred times that we've had this expression. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Wail ye, alas for the day. A time of mourning, you see. This is a lamentation. For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. A cloudy day, 
it shall be the time of the nations. And that is unusual. You don't have many clouds in the land of Egypt because they have less than an inch of rain in that section. They depend upon the river Nile. And by the way, they worship the crocodile of the Nile as well as everything else in the animal world, the bird world, and the bug world. Beasts, birds, bugs. And they worship them all in the land of Egypt. Now, we go on here, and it shall be the time of the nations. And we're living actually in that time today. The nations are really stirring throughout the world. Now, he goes on to say here, "...and the sword shall come upon Egypt, and great pain shall be in Ethiopia, when the slain shall fall in Egypt." And they shall take away her multitude, and her foundations shall be broken down. I won't go into that today, but we will be referring to Ethiopia again. There was quite an alliance between Egypt and Ethiopia. Although we do not consider it very much in studying the Bible, but there was a great deal of enmity and warfare between Egypt and Ethiopia. It's believed by many conservative scholars that Moses when he was Pharaoh's daughter's son and would have been the next Pharaoh, that he actually led an expedition against Ethiopia. Now, we read here, verse 5, Ethiopia and Put, or Libya, and Lud, and that's Lydia, Libya and Lydia now, and all the mingled peoples and Cub, and Put, Lud, and Cub. And the men of the land that's in league shall fall with them by the sword so that at this time there was an alliance and they would all go down and be subject to Nebuchadnezzar. You can see he was actually a world ruler. In fact, he is the head of gold in the four great world kingdoms. Now we read here, verse 6, "...thus saith the Lord, they also that uphold Egypt shall fall." You see, not only Israel had looked to Egypt for help, but these other nations had, and they're going down just as Israel would go down in judgment. Now, I want to drop down here and look at another remarkable prophecy that's here in this 30th chapter. He says here, verse 12, I will make the rivers dry. Now, the rivers, as we've seen before, are actually those different branches down in the delta of the Nile. And there were many of them. And there were canals down there. That was the rich area, by the way. It's right near there, the land of Goshen, a very rich section that the children of Israel were in. I'll make the rivers dry, God says, and I'll sell the land into the hand of the wicked, and I'll make the land waste and all that's in it by the hand of foreigners." I, the Lord, are strangers. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, that fell, as you know, later on. Actually, Alexander the Great took Egypt later on. And when he died, his generals took over. Cleopatra actually was not an Egyptian. She was a Greek. But she ruled over Egypt. And this country came in under the control of the other nations, foreigners, strangers, control this very rich section, but it's filled up. And I'm told today, although I've never gotten into that particular section, but a friend of mine that had just come from there that I met in Cairo, he told me, oh, that's really a swamp down in that section. God says that is what would happen. Now, here is something, another remarkable prophecy. Thus saith the Lord God, this is verse 13, I will also destroy the idols, and I'll cause their images to cease from Memphis. That's the name of this place here. And there shall be no more a prince of the land of Egypt, and I'll put a fear in the land of Egypt. Now, that's quite interesting. This has been literally fulfilled. Now, Memphis at that time was the great city in Egypt. That was a city that probably had more idols in it than any other. And it was a very wealthy city. And along the streets, one idol right after another, that was the decoration, up and down both sides of every street. No place would ever have as many as that 
Now, God says here, I'm going to make the images, the idols, to cease from Memphis. I'll get rid of them. Now, I've walked over what is supposed to be the ruins of Memphis. In fact, it's been cleaned out so that today they're not even quite sure. And the only one there is that great big statue of Ramesses that lies on its back there. And it's housed now. In fact, the house is built around it. That's the only thing that's there. God did exactly what he said. I'll make the idols to cease, and there'd be no prince in the land of Egypt. There's no royal line there anymore. I don't think you could call Nasser or Sadat or, or any of the ones that had been in the past. You couldn't say they were a royal line. And they've never been great rulers. They've had to look to other nations today, and they do at the present moment. Now, God goes on to say here that this is the thing that would happen. I will pour out my fury upon sin. And also he mentioned no. No is Thebes, by the way. And cut off the multitude of no. Thebes in the upper Nile. Great city. Ruins are that. It's disappeared. The greatness is all gone. And God goes on to speak along that line concerning these great cities of Egypt that have now disappeared altogether. Now, God says that Babylon will have a victory over Egypt. And he's repeating this. He's already said it once. But just as he said concerning Jerusalem, he's making it clear here. And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first month, in the seventh day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You know, the king holds the scepter. And if you'll notice these pictures of the rulers in Egypt, they always got something in the hand. God says, I'll break their arm. That's a token of their power. I'll break it. It shall not be bound up or be healed to put a bandage, to bind it, to make strong to hold it. In other words, Babylon will take Egypt. Now, may I say that that was literally fulfilled. Now, friends, we come to this 31st chapter of Ezekiel. We're still talking about Egypt. This is the section in which we have the judgment of the nations. And we began in chapter 29 with Egypt and 31 and 32 that we'll look at today deal with Egypt also. And four chapters given here, as well as we've seen in Isaiah, and then again in Jeremiah and the minor prophets will have it. You see, Egypt figured large in the history of the nation of Israel. And it's rather ironical that today they are the real thorn in the flesh. They are the dog in the manger, as it was. You know, they wouldn't have the baby in the manger, so they got a dog in the manger today, and it's still Egypt. And I should say that God said he'd make Egypt a base nation. And these four chapters reveal, though, something of the greatness of this nation. And here in this 31st chapter, we see the fall of Pharaoh, and it's described in a parable. And, of course, it's not only a parable, but it represents the people of Egypt also. And the land of Egypt was to be judged, both Pharaoh and his subjects. And then you have here a funeral dirge over Pharaoh. And the vision I gave last time was this. You have the greatness and the glory of Pharaoh in Egypt in verses 1 through 9. And then verses 10 through 14, you have the fall of Egypt. And the parable is a tree. Pharaoh's likened to a tree. And now you have the fall of the tree. And then beginning with verse 15 here... You have the lamentation over the fall of the tree or Egypt and the crisis that came to the world, the crisis that was among the nations of the world. It had the same effect in that day that it would have if, for instance, the United States was destroyed overnight. It would certainly change the situation in the world at the present moment, I'm sure. Now, let's look at this rather briefly, but 
It's a very important section. Ezekiel is very important to us. I trust that I've been able to make that point that this book reveals the glory of the Lord and the fact that our God is a holy God and He's going to judge sin. Now, He's merciful. He's kind. He loves mankind. He wants to save. He's not willing that any should perish, but He also judges, and He intends to judge. And He will not spare if you reject his gracious offer. And that is what has happened now to his people. And Egypt is to be judged, and they'll be judged on the light that they had. And they've been given a great deal of light, by the way. Now, listen, verse 2. Son of man, speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom art thou like in thy greatness? You see, God recognized the greatness of this nation over apparently a couple of millenniums. This great kingdom had dominated the world. It was the breadbasket for the world because they did not depend on rainfall. They depended on the Nile River overflowing each year, which it did. Now you have here a nation that has arisen and the greatness of it. Is tremendous. Verse 3, Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon, with fair branches, with a shadowing shroud, and of a high stature. His top was among the thick boughs. Now God says, I likened Assyria, the great nation in the north there, I liken it to a great cedar tree. Now, there's more than one tree in a forest, because one tree won't make a forest. And this tree, Assyria, stood way above the other trees, dominated. But God brought Assyria down, and the message ought to get through to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt. He's a great tree. He's dominated everything. The people of Egypt have been great, but now they're going to be brought low. And as we saw last time, it's to become a base kingdom. And very candidly, for a period now of over 2,000 years, it's been a base kingdom, never a world empire again. Now, let me drop down to verse 10. And now we're going to see the fall of the tree. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God. And that's the way you indicate these divisions here, because each one of them in this chapter begins, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, or thus saith the Lord, Because thou hast lifted up thyself in height, and he hath shot up his top among the thick boughs, and his heart is lifted up in his height. You see, Pharaoh, a human being, is lifted up with pride, because pride's in the human heart. And his greatness, you know, it blinded him to the danger that he was in. But now God says here, I have therefore delivered him into the hand of the mighty one of the nations. Who is the mighty one of the nations now? Well, it was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I don't think he's speaking here of Satan because Satan has had Egypt for years. This wasn't something new. The great one was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And if you want to confirm that, read Daniel. And Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. The greatness of this man hasn't been exceeded. Now, he says, I've delivered you. That is Pharaoh of Egypt. He shall surely deal with him. I've driven him out of his wickedness. And strangers, the terrible of the nations, have cut him off. In other words, Egypt is to be taken now. Now you have the lamentation over the fall of Egypt, and here is a very remarkable section of the Word of God. And here is a place we'd like to stay for some time. But many of you that study the Word of God, here's a place where you can do a great deal of study. Now, will you notice it? Verse 15, Thus saith the Lord God, in the day when he went down to Sheol, I caused a mourning. This is Pharaoh. Now, he goes down to defeat and is killed. 
Now, this is a remarkable passage of Scripture. Sheol that we have here actually is not the grave, although Sheol at times means the grave. And I think the context makes that clear. But Sheol actually means the unseen world, the unknown region, the abode of the dead. Not just the grave where the physical body is placed, but that's where the spirit goes. You remember Solomon had spoken of the fact that the body returns to the grave, and actually the spirit goes to God. And that is the thing that he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, "...then shall the dust return to the earth as it was." That is, this body that you and I have got is nothing in the world but dust. And the psalmist, you remember, says he remembers we are dust. Now, sometimes we forget it. And when dust gets stuck on itself, it's mud. We need to remember that as far as these bodies are concerned, it's dust. You put them in the ground, they'll go back to dust. And for the believer, the Lord Jesus spoke of that as sleep. And also, you remember that Paul in Thessalonians speaks of that as sleep. The dust shall return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Now, where does the Spirit of the lost go? To Sheol. And we find out later, that same as Hades in the New Testament, and we find out in the parable the Lord gave, which is a parable, but it also is a true life story of a rich man died, and he went to Sheol, a place of torment it's called. Not hell, not the lake of fire, but he went there. Apparently it's temporary. There's a big gulf between there and where the saved were in the Old Testament. And you have there this poor beggar. He went to Abraham's bosom. And now this is a picture of Pharaoh going down into Sheol. This is not his body. We're not talking about that now. And notice what happens here. I covered the deep for him, and I restrained his floods, and the great waters were stayed. And I caused Lebanon to mourn for him, and all the trees of the field fainted for him. Now, when he died, the entire world mourned. Up there in Lebanon, which was the great nation of Phoenicia, they mourned. The world mourned when Egypt went down. All were dependent upon it. Their economy rested upon it, and its culture And also, those that were allies would always be protected by Egypt. What a picture that you have here. Now he goes on to say, verse 16, I made the nations to shake at the sound of his fall when I cast him down to Sheol with those who descend into the pit. That is, that's the grave. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of love. Now the tree is cut down and... Where does Pharaoh go? Well, he's down in Sheol. Now, what does he discover? Verse 18, To whom art thou thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? Yet shalt thou be brought down with the trees of Eden into the lower parts of the earth. Thou shalt lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, saith the Lord God. Now, when he got down to Sheol, he found out that these other rulers that had been slain, they were down there too. And he discovered something else, that there is a democracy in death. We speak a great deal today of integration. There's nothing that will integrate the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the male and female, those at the top of the social ladder and those at the bottom of it, like death, all are brought to the same level. Not only where the body is placed, but the spirit. And I think that one of the probably startling things that's going to happen to some people is that they're going to find out that they're not, as an atheist said, me and Nashville, man, just like a dog when he dies, He's just like a dog dying. He's going to be surprised when he moves into a place and find out who all's there. It's going to be quite a company. And quite a company of those that 
didn't believe that there was an afterlife and that there was going to be a judgment of the lost. And they're now all on the same par. (laughs) You talk about integration, that's when you're going to really have it, all on the same plane, all on the same basis. All have come to the same place. That's where the spirits go, those that have rejected today the Lord Jesus. They're not there because they're sinners. They're there because they've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are the ones that will be judged, I think, as no one else will be judged, of course. To turn your back upon him is a sin of sin because they believe not on me. How terrible it is not to trust Christ as your Savior. Say a great deal could be said about this passage of Scripture. This particular section here, it opens up a new area altogether. Someone has called this the Dante's Inferno of the Bible. It's like that. The lost do go to a place. The Lord Jesus called it a place of torment. And waiting for the judgment, because I think when they're there, they're all going to say, Oh, I'm going to appear before God, and I'll get things straightened out there, because I was a pretty good fella. Then when they stand in the presence of the one that was crucified for them, they're going to find out their puny little works doesn't amount to much down here, and that they have a fallen nature, they have no capacity for God, no interest in God at all. And where else would God put them? Do you think he can take you to heaven, friends, when you're in rebellion against him? This is, oh, this is a passage of Scripture that we're looking at here. 